Today, if you hear his voice, the psalmist says, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of hearing you speak to us tonight. And we pray that you would open our ears, you would soften our hearts and strengthen our commitment to you and to one another. For we ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Um, Now this uh, may tell you something about uh, my personality. But uh, on the desktop uh, of my laptop, I only have two folders. Uh, One is called St. Peter's, and it has uh, sermons and uh, all kinds of things, uh, church things in it. The other has the the name M-I-S-C. That is short for, uh, kids, if you don't know what that is short for, it's short for miscellaneous. And if you don't know what miscellaneous is, or what miscellaneous means, it means lots and lots of things kind of gather together. So if you uh, click on the folder, uh, you will find all kinds of different random documents. You will see all teaching lesson plans. Uh, You could uh, look through all the PowerPoints. You could find all my notes from seminary. You could find a copy of my driving license, a CV, uh, letters to the taxman, and interesting articles that I've not had time to read yet, all kinds of things are crammed into that folder. And as we come to the end of uh, 1 Thessalonians, I think it seems like Paul is doing something a bit like that. These 17 verses at the end of this letter, they are packed with all kinds of different, it seems like scraps of information, doesn't it? Um, Every verse seems to talk about something different. So Paul writes about leaders and laziness. He talks about prayer and prophecy. He talks about good and evil. He talks about the return of Christ. He even talks about a holy kiss. And we almost expect him to throw in the kitchen sink. Was Paul just running out of parchment? Was he doing what... uh, Pupils, students, often, here's a little hint, here's a little tip, often wrongly do at the end of history essays and just write down absolutely everything they know about the subject as their handwriting gets worse and worse and worse? Well, I don't think so. I think all of this in this uh, part of God's Word is really deliberate. Paul is, what Paul's doing is getting more and more and more and more specific He's getting more and more specific about the kind of life God calls us to live as his people. Uh, But because there's lots of things mentioned here, what I want to do tonight is I want to think about it under two big headings, uh, our commitments and God's commitment. Our commitments and God's commitment. In a way, those are like the two big folders on my uh, laptop. Let's think first about our commitments. 
And there are lots of different things uh, Paul speaks about here that God wants us to be committed to as his people in these verses. But I think we can, again, sum them up with two things. I think mainly Paul speaks in these verses about horizontal relationships and a vertical relationship. There are lots of instructions here about our relationships in the church, our relationships with one another, the the horizontal things. There's lots here too about the church, the vertical relationship we have with God. Let's think first about our commitments and the horizontal. As Paul begins this section, the first thing he speaks about is leadership in the church. This is not the first time he's done so. Back in uh, chapters 2 and 3, he reminded the Thessalonians what his ministry had been like. He used parental language in those chapters. And Paul was someone who was willing to challenge. And yet he was also gentle. Paul was someone who, who spoke about his hard work, his, his holiness. That was the kind of leader he was. And now in, in these verses, he, he turns the, the camera on the leaders in this Christian community. We know very little about them. They're, these are the, the early days of the early church. But look how they're described in verses 12 and 13. They have a set role, don't they? They, they labor. They have authority. They're clearly called to admonish and warn and instruct these believers. And that responsibility, it means these Christians listening to Paul, receiving this letter, are to respond to them in a certain way. Can you see that? Paul says they're to be respected, verse 12. They're to be esteemed very highly in love, verse 13. And maybe you're thinking tonight, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Uh, You're a Christian leader telling us to respect Christian leaders. And so it is really important to say that Paul is not talking here about blind agreement. God's word does not say respect your leaders or else. No questions. No, the picture in these verses, if we read them, I think faithfully, is clear. Christians are to respect leaders who are working hard when they're laboring to teach, to admonish, to lead. And to borrow a phrase from a man that uh, Jesus met, when it comes to church leadership, we too are men under authority. Ministers and elders are called to shepherd, but there is a chief shepherd. And one day, every church leader will have to give an account for the way that they have treated the sheep that Jesus died for. That is why the elders of this church, that is why the elders of every church you and I know need your prayers. Now, in our culture, I think um, respect, esteem, love, those are not really the kind of words we would uh, use to describe church leaders, is it? They, if, but if they serve faithfully, according to Paul, that is the way they are to be treated. 
And when verses 12 and 13, when they, when they happen in a church, when there's this kind of reciprocity, it's, it's beautiful. It means there's stability. That is something to pray for as a church. When there is breakdown between church leaders and church members, really nobody wins. So Paul uh, talks here about our horizontal relationships, our relationships with one another. He talks about leadership. And yeah, I think one of the lovely things about this letter is how warm, how encouraging it is. Five times in this section, Paul refers to these Christians as brothers, twice at the start and three times at the end. Can you see that? That word brother is a gender-inclusive term. It means men and women. And in verses 14 and 15, it's really clear, isn't it? We are being called to commit to one another. We are being reminded that we are family. The emphasis here is on the church as a whole. See, can you see how each verse ends? Verse 14 ends with them all. Verse 15 ends with these words, to everyone. There's lots of different instructions in these uh, two verses. It's really interesting, for example, that having said that admonishing was clearly a job for leaders, Paul says that all Christians, in a sense, are to admonish certain people, the idol, kind of people who were taking advantage of the the generosity of others. Those people were to be told to work. And I'm not going to go through every single clause uh, here in verses 14 and 15. Instead, I want to focus on the end of verse 14. Look at it with me. Look at what Paul says. He says, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And I want to ask us a question tonight. What does patience imply? When we have to be patient with other people, what does that mean? See, sometimes I think problems start in church when we forget this. We can be so idealistic about church life. We can be very, very naive about the early church. It's common for people to say, isn't it? If only we could be more like them, then we'd be the kind of church God wants us to be. And in a sense, that's true. But you just have to read the New Testament letters to see that it is full of churches with friction, with sin, with mistakes with problems. There was no golden age. And having to be patient with people, that implies we will, sometimes we will find one another difficult, awkward, hard work. And let me just let you all into a little secret, in on a secret. Some people will find us like that. Even me. We will, we will think, we will think, even, how can I be the kind of person 
that will be like that, and yet we will be to some people. What do we think a spirit-filled church looks like? I think if we were to ask that question to, to people, we'd often say, wouldn't we, things like, well, miracles, we'd assume it, miracles, amazing music, that kind of thing. A spirit-filled church, it looks like lots of people having to be very patient with each other. Because patience is, what is patience? It is a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? When the Holy Spirit is at work, really at work in a church family, people will bear with each other. See, what's true in um, family life is true in church family life. You put put an extended family in a holiday house for a week, it can be brilliant. But if you have a week of rain, and if you have someone in the family who uses all the hot water, and if everyone just thinks about themselves, it can be a disaster. Will we tonight, will we commit to one another? Will we be mature enough to do that? Will we be willing to do the kind of things Paul talks about in verses 14 and 15? Will we be willing to be on the receiving end of things like that? So Paul talks about our commitments. He talks about the horizontal commitment we have to one another. But in speaking about our commitments, Paul also talks about our vertical commitment, our commitment to God. There's been lots of uh, talk about COVID-19 this week, hasn't there? Um, I'm not making any comment on whether uh, what I'm about to say was right or wrong, but the government, they they used during COVID-19, they used short, snappy slogans, didn't they? So stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives, that kind of thing. And if you look down, if you look at verses 16 to 22, I think we see something um, similar. What we see here is a series of kind of short, snappy statements. Rejoice, Paul says, pray, give thanks. Don't do this. Don't do that. Test, hold fast, abstain. And some scholars, they think that what Paul is doing here, he's kind of giving the beginnings even of a liturgy, the beginnings of a, of a structure for when Christians gather together to worship. Because the language, all the language here is plural. See, I think we often, we take uh, 16 to 18, we think about uh, verses like that as talking about just our individual piety. But that's not quite right. And these verses really, they're all about our corporate piety, our corporate worship. Look what Paul says about it. He says, our praise is to have a note of joy. It should be reverent, and yet you and I, we have a risen king. And so maybe from time to time, Paul's question to the Galatians should be asked of us, what has happened to all your joy. 
Not only that, Paul says we are to express our dependence on God by praying continually. That doesn't mean prayer is all we do as a a church family, but it is the main way, isn't it? We show that we need the Lord. When it's absent, and prayer is absent in a church family, well, we're just implying, aren't we? We can do things in our own strength. As we worship week by week, there's also, Paul says, to be a note of thanksgiving. There might be all kinds of difficulties going on in our lives as a church family, but we look back, don't we? We look back to all that God has done for us. We give thanks and we look forward. We're people who say, thus far the Lord has helped us. And we're people who say, the best is yet to so joy prayer gratitude these are to be the marks of our worship these are the kind of vertical commitments we're to make to god but i think there's one more thing we see here in verses 19 to 22 paul says that our piety and our our worship our, if you like, vertical relationship to God is to be guided by his truth, his word. Look what he says. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, this is a, the kind of passage in the New Testament that often provokes lots of debate, isn't it? Um, some Christians, maybe even some Christians here uh, tonight in this room, might, we might read it slightly differently to others. But I think it's really important to remember, what Paul, when Paul was writing, he was writing in days when the New Testament was in the process of being written, wasn't he? church in Thessalonica did not have the whole New Testament as we do. And in a sense, this was a kind of transition period. And transitions can be difficult. And so it meant that there was real care needed. It was also a time when people regularly came, didn't they? They brought words of prophecy to the whole church. And I really love, I love Paul's balance here. He wants his readers to be open to what God might say through these words of prophecy. And yet it's really clear, isn't it? He doesn't want them to just believe everything they're told. If someone says, I've, I've got a word of prophecy for our church, I believe God has told me something. Well, that didn't mean that they were simply to accept it without question. Instead, they were to test it. And the word uh, used here is similar to our word like sifting. But what is it they were to test it by? The answer, of course, is Scripture. That is why, look at verse 27, look what Paul says. Paul is an apostle handpicked by Jesus. His words carry 
great weight. Paul doesn't say, sift what I say to you. What he says is different to these words of prophecy. What he says is God's word. They are to be part of the standard all the Thessalonians are to use to verify words of prophecy, verify the truth. Now, as believers today, you and I, we are in a more privileged position than the Thessalonians. We have the full canon of Scripture. And God has given us all of His very great, His precious promises. We have been given everything we need for life and godliness. The church, Paul says elsewhere, is built on the foundation of the prophets of the Old Testament, the, the apostles of the New Testament. And our lives are to be built on that foundation. Um, I was at uh, Dundee CU the other day. Um, I felt very old uh, going back there after a long time. Uh, but I remember, I remember hearing a story about um, a CU event many years ago uh, where a speaker said something really controversial in the middle of a talk and a student shouted out, where do you see that in the Bible? Um, I'm not suggesting that you do that on a Sunday night or a Sunday morning or at CU. But I think what Paul is speaking about here means that you and I, when we listen to sermons, we are to be active listeners. Listening to a sermon, it's not like watching Netflix. We are to listen carefully. We are to test what's being said against the rest of Scripture. And if we think, if you think that a sermon has not been faithful to the text, you should come and talk to us about it. So God wants us to commit to one another. And God wants us to be committed to him. But as we uh, draw to a close, I want to shift the focus. In this passage, we don't just see our commitments. We see God's commitment. God's commitment. That's the second heading. Um, Sir Alex Ferguson, he was the, the Man United manager for uh, almost three decades. During his time as their manager, they, Man United, they enjoyed amazing success, didn't they? In the last 10 years, though, things have uh, not gone so well. If you include caretaker managers, interim managers, there have been eight people who have tried to fill uh, his shoes. And yet it finally seems like they might have the right uh, man. This time last Sunday, Eric Ten Hag, he led Man United to their first trophy in several years. But one reporter, uh, one article that I read about that, um, pointed out that much of that success could be traced back to one humiliating defeat. Uh, back in August, they lost uh, 4-0 to Brentford. And uh, I have friends who live in Brentford, and yet with all due respect, they are the kind of team that Man United should uh, beat pretty easily. They lost 4-0, as I said. In the course of 90 minutes, the Brentford players 
and apologies if you're not interested in football, the Brentford players ran eight and a half miles further than the Man United players. And so the next day, their manager, Eric Ten Hag, he cancelled their day off and he made them do an eight and a half mile run. And it was August and the weather was very hot and he joined them on the run. It's an amazing example of leadership, isn't it? He wanted them to know that he was totally committed to their success. And in a sense, I think that is something of the picture in verses 23 to 24. As Paul gives this young church, you know, lots of things to do, lots of things to commit to, Paul wants them to know that God is totally committed to them. And these words, verse 23, 24, these are the kind of words that I have loved, I've started to love saying at the end of a service. Because they're a benediction, aren't they? They're a blessing, they're a prayer for God's people. They are full of assurance and certainty. And I think it's just, it is classic Paul, even as he concludes a a formal letter to a church, he prays. And he does that because he's a really good pastor. He knows that Christians often hear calls to commit, calls to live for God. And those people, they feel very weak, very worried. You know, am I actually a real Christian? And so as he's urged them on to holiness, look what he says. He now asks God to sanctify them completely. And even in doing that, even in praying like this, he's communicating something. Sanctification is first and foremost a work of God. Yes, there are commitments we're called to as God's people, but God is committed to us. God is wholly committed to us. Tonight, if you're a Christian, God is completely committed to you. You see that word completely, it means through and through. It speaks of their spirit, their soul, their body, the whole person. And so here's a, here's a news flash tonight. No matter how much we grow in the Christian life, and we should work, we should pray for growth and holiness, no matter how much we progress, well, it's only when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, isn't it, that we will be fully, we will be finally holy. On that day, we may not feel blameless but we will be blameless. We will stand before him clothed in his righteousness. The one who, who began a good work in us, he will bring it to completion. He is that committed to you. And so as we finish this letter, I want us to remember that that God always finishes what he starts. You see, look at verse 28. Look at what we might call 
uh, the second benediction, the double benediction. Look what Paul leaves these young Christians with. Look what he wants ringing in their ears. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, grace was the reason that Paul's Christian life began. Grace was the reason this church began. Grace is the reason our church began. Grace is the reason our Christian life began. Amazing grace. Surprising grace. You and I were not saved by our commitment. We're not kept by our obedience. Well, the Bible's really clear. The Christian life, the whole of the Christian life is grace from beginning to end. And so I want to um, close just um, by sharing a lovely story that one of you uh, shared with me recently. It's the story, it's the tale of Charles Spurgeon's final sermon. Um, Spurgeon, he was the the pastor of uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in the heart of London for many years. Spurgeon was a man who knew great suffering, great mental anguish, great depression. He was a man of sorrows. And throughout his ministry, um, he pointed people to Christ And on uh, June the 7th, 1891, he ended his sermon by doing, doing what he'd done all through his ministry. He spoke of Jesus. He said, if you follow him, he said, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest for your souls. He is, Spurgeon said, Jesus is the most magnanimous of captains. There was never his like among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it Also, these 40 years and more have I served him. Blessed be his name. And I have had nothing but love from him. Friends, the one who calls you is faithful. And so may you know that faithfulness today, tonight, tomorrow, forever. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how we thank you this evening.